As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast! I am Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards, and that was another failed attempt to introduce, introduce introduction, start my podcast about bad have, people. You shouldn't have axed the, the standard, man. I really liked it. Yeah, I, I feel a need to change it. Just um, get a haircut or something, man. I get a lot of haircuts. I don't know. You know, No, like something Lucas. different. You know what I mean? Like, go get a mohawk and keep the greeting the same. I think frosted I ha- tips. I have a mohawk, technically. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Frosted tips. My- get some frosted tips and leave the frosted intro alone. Tips. No, I, I, I feel that, like, George Lucas, like, I'm not really an artist unless I am tinkering with my work past the point where it works and but, to the point where no one enjoys it anymore. But your real art is mansplaining and you still have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Sophie, this episode, I'm going to have you explain the bastard I wrote about who you have never heard of. So this will be a short episode of the show. Mm-mm. Hi, I'm Sophie Alexander, you guys. <laughs> yeah. I'm just out here giving him shit. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, you didn't, even, you didn't even intro your guest. Because I interrupted him. It's okay. It was we, a great it insult. Was, it's this, uh, <laughs> just a train wreck from the out of the jump. Um, good God. <laughs> You're not even Sophia. in the room to see our like shady like eye looks we keep giving each other about <laughs> <you>. <laughs> All deserved. Uh, I'm very hungover right now. Um, so this is a shit show in so many ways. <laughs> Sophia. Hi. Alexandra. Private Parts Unknown. That's right. And 420 Day Fiance, bitch. We out here. And 420 Day Fiance. That's right. Sophia. Yeah. Do you know about a guy named John Ronald Brown? Yeah, I fucked him last week. 
No, I don't know who that I is. I <laughs> hope not. I really, really, you will not want to have fucked this guy after I, we I'm finish sure this story. I'm sure since I'm here, he is, uh, he is a genocider of just babies. And I'm sure that uh, I will want to kill myself by the end of this, like I usually do. Because that's what you do to invite me here. Now, you know, a genocider of babies, so babies aren't very tough, right? So if you're killing babies, it's probably pretty quick, right? Like, they just can't handle a lot. Probably, um, he says. <laughs> jo- John Ronald Brown, this might be our darkest episode. Because, um, wow. not because, like, the crime is the darkest. Because, like, obviously, we've talked about people who've killed a lot more people. Georgia Tan killed a lot more people oh, than yeah. John Ronald Brown. She sure did. But the things that he did to people are so gruesome and ghastly. We're going to be talking about a lot of botched surgery today. So oh, my God, <laughs> dude. I watch that show botched all the time. This is perfect for me. This is like the most, the worst version of that. Um, we're talking about a doctor who abused trans people uh, for years. So, Oh, dude, really? <laughs> yeah, it's not a good one. Do you- <sighs> it's it's Sophie, not when I'm not here, does he talk about how he hates me the most out of like all of the guests? Is that yeah, what happens? Yeah, it's literally his <laughs> hobby. <laughs> you are a bastard among bastards, I, Robert I am the real bad guy of the series, except for in the case of this episode, because John Ronald Brown is even worse than I could hope to be. All right, let's do this. So if you were uh, like a trans woman in like the 1850s your options would be pretty much limited to like the cosmetic you know shaving wearing you know the clothing of your of uh, of your choice makeup you, there weren't like options for surgery right and so even many like pretty woke writers who had a deep understanding of the community in the 1800s and early 1900s would kind of lump transgender women in with transvestites and usually just use the the word transvestite and nowadays, that's like definitely an insult. But kind of when you're reading stuff from like the late 1800s, a lot of times they actually are trying to be like understanding. It's just like the the the, the verbiage hadn't evolved very far at that point. The first person to transition medically was probably Lily Elb, who did so in 1930 with the help of pioneering sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld. Uh, In addition to having an incredible name, Magnus was one of the bravest uh, scientists in history. Uh, He was a homosexual himself, and he had to hide being gay in order to practice medicine at the highest levels of German society. Uh, And in spite of this, he established a career as a tireless advocate for LGB and particularly T individuals in Berlin. Uh, In 1897, he founded the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which was dedicated to ending the stigma against homosexuality and to criminalizing it in Germany. So this is 1897. So Magnus is- That's amazing. Ahead of the curve, Big Magnus energy over there. Big Magnus energy. It's interesting to me that he's like such an advocate while also being a closeted gay man himself, because I think there was this understanding that like- well, I won't be able to actually do this work very effectively if kind of everyone knows, um, because it's Germany in 1897. Um, That's but, an incredible yeah. sacrifice to make, to stay yeah. closeted so you could help other people be themselves. Yeah, he was an amazing guy. Um, now, one of Magnus's achievements was the establishment of an LGBT self-help group, uh, and probably the first self-help group of like sort of in the modern sense of the word where queer individuals in Berlin, and again, the 1890s and early 1900s, could meet and discuss their issues. By creating a space where these people could gather, Magnus also gathered for himself the first large sample population of queer men and women ever studied in a systematic and scientific way. He circulated a questionnaire among them and received answers from tens of thousands of people. Um, so he was able to actually do like like longitudinal sort of like survey work on the gay community prior to World War I. Um, so this is obviously like groundbreaking shit. 
but obviously, given the time it was, it was not perfect. Uh, and <laughs> you would not uh, consider like the wording that he used for everything ideal in the modern sense of the word. Uh, and I'm going to quote from The Guardian now. Elb, who was that uh, uh, one of the transgender women that he worked with, was reportedly disgusted by the questionnaire and the ambiguity of transsexuality as it was represented in the Institute. She described being requested to answer all these very rude and strict questions, says Rainier Hearn, a sexology researcher at Charité Hospital in Berlin. She refused the descriptions of sexual intermediates such as transvestites and hermaphrodites. It was not acceptable for her. For her, there was no ambiguity. She was a woman, so she was very irritated by the whole process. So even like a guy like Hirschfeld doesn't really understand like transgender like that like the, the 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 like the nature of that doesn't understand what's going on with Elb and I don't think anyone really has a vocabulary here. So like a lot of people I think who were trans back then probably would have called themselves something different just because like the 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 state of development of the vocabulary was so much more primitive. Sure. Um, but Hirschfeld uh, agreed to help Elb transition, and with his assistance, she underwent surgery to have her testicles removed in Berlin, and then she underwent further surgeries in Dresden. Uh, now these were mostly cosmetic surgeries, um, but as Hearn points out, just cosmetic surgery was not enough for Elb. Uh, quote, Elb wanted to have implanted ovaries and a uterus because at that time to be a real woman, you had to be capable of having children. That was her ideal. She was obsessed by this. In Elb's biography, which is based on her diaries, she always fantasizes about being a complete woman. So obviously, then as now, uh, technology did not make that possible. Um, I don't think we can do that now uh, in 1931. It was not a thing medical science was up to the task of doing. Uh, and Elb's body rejected the new womb, and she died of heart failure on September 13th, 1931. That's so sad. Uh, yeah, it's a real bummer of a story. Um, and there's a there's a good book about her, uh, the title of which I thought I included in here, but I did not. It'll be on BehindTheBastards.com in our, in our source notes. So Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Research was destroyed by the Nazis, uh, and his records were destroyed once Hitler came into power. If you Google Nazi book burning, uh, the pictures that you get are the Hirschfeld Library being burned by the Nazis. And this was a major setback for humanity and particularly for LGBT individuals, as much of what Magnus had been studying were th was like the biological roots of homosexuality. Uh, and in some ways, science still has not recovered from this loss. It took up until like really the last like 10 or 15 years in a lot of cases where like we started to, to rebuild to the level that he was he was getting to be at in the 30s. Have you uh, um, seen the show Transparent? No. They do flashbacks to to this to the, the to the 30s? to the whole story, yeah. Oh, cool. To all the queer yeah, people, and then to the book burning. It's not really like told in like a chronological kind of like, and then this happened scene. It's just little flashes every episode for the season for this one season. Anyway, yeah, it's a bummer of a tale. Um, so yeah, the Nazis, uh, as Nazis do, uh, really uh, jammed a finger in the eye of progress. But progress did not stand still, uh, and other developments in the early 20th century had a major impact on the development of gender transitioning. Uh, in 1929, estrone, uh, a female hormone, was isolated, followed by estriol. Uh, eventually, both hormones were classified together as estrogen. Uh, progesterone was isolated and described for the first time in 1934, testosterone in 1935. Uh, now, it was not a short route from isolating these hormones and to figuring out how to uh, produce them synthetically, but by the 1940s, the first injectable hormones had been developed, uh, making what we now know as hormone replacement therapy possible. So that's like the genesis of, uh, of HRT. 
Now, the first person to receive what we'd recognize as a modern gender transition uh, was a woman named Christine Jorgensen. Yep. Um, and you you might call her the first guinea pig for injectable hormones because like b- people really didn't know like how this was all going to work until they tried it on her. Um, and I'm going to quote now from the book Crossing Sexual Boundaries by J. Ari Kane DeMeos. Quote, uh, just how confusing the whole situation was at the time is indicated by the fact that the physician involved in the case called Jorgensen a transvestite in his official account of the case. Uh, his treatment of Jorgensen was in part surgical, castration, and a penectomy, but the important thing was the massive hormone treatment. Before going to Denmark, Jorgensen had been injecting herself with estrogen to bring about physiological changes, and after Hamburger and his associates examined her, they decided to treat her with massive injections of estrogen, much larger than what she had given herself. The large dosages changed the shape of Jorgensen's body to a more feminine, Contour. In her behavior, gait, and appearance also became more feminine. As her beard became sparser, electrolysis was used to remove the remaining hair. The one thing they did not do for her was to give her a vagina, a failure that was only later partially resolved and not particularly satisfactory. Yet she looked and acted like a woman, something that took considerable practice before she was satisfied enough to tell her story. So Christine Jorgensen went to the press in 1951, um, explicitly against her doctor's wishes. Um, and her story was an instant, like, huge media sensation. Um, and while the media at the time definitely did not treat it with overwhelming respect, um, the fact that she was coming out and talking about her experience was one of the most important moments in the history of trans visibility. Like, it was one of those things that, like, it had to happen, and it was always going to suck, kind of, for the first yeah. person to do it, because the media in 1951 was not going to be very tactful. Um, but because whenever she did you're the it, Jackie you know, Robinson of anything, it sucks. Yeah. And it's a little like what you were talking about earlier. Like it is awkward. We're kind of in this awkward period now of discussing like non-binary gender and like trying to figure all this stuff and the terminology out. And it leads to a lot of arguments, but like you have to have these awkward periods before you kind of like get people used enough to certain ideas that it stops being weird and starts being something that like is, is just life. Um, yeah. Yeah, so Jorgensen is is important for a lot of reasons. Um, And in the wake of her transition, um, huge numbers of people started writing to her doctor, who was, again, Danish, um, to request the surgery for themselves. And in fact, so many people flooded Denmark with requests for gender uh, reassignment surgery that the government had to enact a law banning it for non-Danish people out of a fear that they would just be flooded uh, by trans people from around the world looking for surgery and hormone replacement therapy. So this is like the like there's all these people who have clearly always been there and when Jorgensen comes out they're like oh it wasn't just this thing that I alone was dealing with um and then they kind of flood Denmark with requests for surgery because it's the only place doing it at the time. Now the medical community in the 50s was obviously very much mixed on the subject of what precisely Christine Jorgensen uh was. Many psychiatrists considered her mentally ill and criticized Dr. Hamburger for using surgery and hormone replacement therapy instead of psychotherapy to correct what was seen as a sexual perversion. Well, it took a while for them to take it out of the DSM as being something that they can consider to be abnormal sexuality. So, yeah. Yeah, decades and decades. Um, And the whole battle over that is is very complicated and, again, beyond kind of the scope of this episode. Um, But one of the results of this whole thing was that Dr. Harry Benjamin popularized the term transsexualism to replace transvestism. So in like transsexual, again, we've moved beyond that term these days, and it's generally seen as rude, but there was a time in which that was like the the kind of polite and medical term used that was um, a gain. to describe this thing. Yeah, yeah, that was a gain. It was a step forward. 
So over the following years, the first gender identity clinic started to be established, uh, starting with Johns Hopkins University and then Case Western Reserve University and then the University of Minnesota, uh, the University of Oregon and Stanford University. Kind of surprising that Minnesota beat Stanford uh, for right. gender identity clinics, but uh, good for Minnesota. Yeah, Stanford should have been first. What the fuck, California? You, you would think, right? <laughs> I mean, California hasn't always been this libertine paradise it is today. Yeah. Now, um, these institutions began to slowly catch up to where Magnus Hirschfeld had been back in the 30s. And while their research focused mostly on trying to understand and classify what precisely trans people were, uh, they also engaged in early sexual reassignment surgeries. Um, Dallas Denny's, uh, Dallas Denny, sorry, a trans rights activist and writer. I was like, uh, was whoa, critical. they did this shit at Denny's? So they yes, got they did, yeah, that's Grand actually Slam how Denny's got it right after? That's fucking tight. It turns out they were terrible at surgery, but really good at cooking omelets. So they just sort of moved right into that. <laughs> hey, man, can't can't make an omelet without breaking a few, removing a few eggs. Am I right? That, ladies, there we go. Ladies. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> you may have actually a wrong idea about what an omelet is. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> So um, now, uh, Dallas Denny, um, who was a, a trans uh, woman, a trans rights activist and a writer, uh, was very critical about some of their about the, like the, the efforts of these kind of early uh, gender reassignment clinics. Uh, and she wrote this, quote, the clinics viewed sexual reassignment as a last ditch effort to save those with whom other therapies and interventions had failed. Those who were accepted for treatment were usually prostitutes, those with substance abuse problems, sociopaths, those who were schizophrenics, those who were profoundly depressed or suicidal, and others who were considered hopeless, i.e. likely to die anyway. It was a classic Jesus. misapplication of the triage method, with those most likely to benefit from the intervention being turned away and the terminal cases receiving treatment. So people who like were relatively emotionally stable and healthy would be denied the surgery um, because they was seen as like, well, you're fine. You don't need this. And like people who were like clearly for probably a lot of other reasons, you know, kind of on the edge of suicide emergency cases would be given surgery. So it meant that, and this has, this is like had an effect that went on to this day because it means that like some of the first, you know, transgender like people, the first people to go through the surgery that were studied were people who had a whole lot of other issues, which again led to like this, reinforced this belief that they were like fundamentally unhealthy because they wouldn't let healthy trans people have the surgery. Um, so it's kind of messed up. It's like when people blame Jews for being into money and then the only jobs they could have is, were as money lenders. It's like, yeah, yeah you got us. There's some lines we there. fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, since medical schools were often unwilling to help trans patients, the private sector swooped in to offer assistance because sweet lady capitalism is nothing if not inclusive once money is on the line. Uh, a small number of surgeons, some motivated by altruism, others by a desire for cold hard cash, began to service the needs of the trans community. This was dicey legal ground. Uh, to protect themselves from malpractice claims, many of these surgeons required psychiatric clearances. Uh, the ones who did not inevitably, tended to be sketchier individuals. And this, finally, brings us to the subject of today's episode, John Ronald Brown. It was a long introduction. Oh, and now it's time for ads. You Products. know who won't perform sketchy, unlicensed surgery, Sophia? Uh, the following goods and services? Yes, only licensed surgery um, from the following goods and services. Oh boy, it's gonna. This <laughs> is not, not gonna be the, the the last ad transition that's uncomfortable in this episode. That was not great, Robert. It was not great. It was not great. What do you want? 
no, no. Good. I expect not great. A it's good fine. ad transition on a Sophia episode? That's not going to happen. Truth. But don't bring me into it. Yeah, don't loop her into your mess. You're I mean, at least we didn't your own go from like, buddy. you know what didn't kill all those babies? <laughs> Dick pills. <laughs> Here's some products. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. 
the wise man, the Marie is a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. All right. You so, notice I got you saying goods and services now? Fuck yeah. I, I do. I do. You <laughs> incepted it in my mind. I know. It's pretty great. I'll, glow, so, I'll, I'll grow inside of you slowly like a fungus, Robert. I love funguses. That's where we get all of our best mushrooms. Yep. I'm now, just the mushroom of the heart. <laughs> Sylvia. Yes. We've had a little history lesson, and now it's time to talk about a terrible person. Motherfucker, this whole thing is a history lesson, okay? Yeah. John Ronald Brown. Uh, and I'm going to continually use his middle name because calling him John Brown will very much mix him up with the guy that we don't want mixed up in this story, uh, the, the, the hero John Brown. So John Ronald Brown was born on July 14th, 1922. I don't know where, and I haven't been able to find much, if any, meaningful tales about his childhood. He claims in interviews to have been the son of a Mormon physician in Utah, which is probably where he comes from. John was apparently something of a child genius, and he found academics so easy that he graduated high school at age 16. He was drafted into the Army at the start of World War II. Wait, uh, I feel like he soldier. would lie about graduating at 16, but I do yes. not feel like he would lie about being from Utah. What no do you, one has. What ever. do you gain from that? <laughs> No one has ever pretended to be That's from Utah. That's what I'm Utah. saying. Anyway, go <laughs> yeah. on. It's like lying about coming from Oklahoma City. Like, yeah. Yeah, I trust you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he gets drafted into the Army at the start of World War II. Uh, and as a new soldier, he was required to take the general classification test, which is the precursor to the modern ASVAB test, which is like, are, you, are what jobs are you smart enough to do in the Army? Um, now, decades later, in interviews with journalists, John Ronald Brown would claim to have scored higher on this test than any of the other 300,000 people who had taken it previously in Utah. <laughs> now, this guy's a liar, so he might be lying, but I also don't know that you would lie about being the smartest man in Utah. Um, again. <laughs> I mean, if you're the kind of man who lied about being from Utah, you would probably lie about being the smartest man in Utah. I think he's probably. It's just a pile I, I, of lies. I, yeah, maybe, It's maybe. like saying but you got again, a 1600 on your SATs, but only when you're not in your hometown. <laughs> I, I, like, I wouldn't be surprised if 300,000 people was like 300,000 times the number of people who could read fluently in Utah in the 1940s. So <laughs> a lot of Utah shade being thrown in this episode. Seriously, which we're deserves. mean. Utah is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It is beautiful, but not humans. No. Nobody goes to Utah for the humans. No. You go to Zion no, it's National not. Park to get away from them. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Whatever the truth about how intelligent he was vis-a-vis -vis the rest of Utah, Brown's score was high enough that the Army sent him to medical school. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Utah in 1947 and his medical degree three months later because apparently that was a lot easier in the 40s. Yeah, what the fuck? Um, you just yeah. had a BA and put in an extra three months? That's like a summer. I don't think it was hard to be a doctor back then. Um, Man. They, they, they had just locked down that you shouldn't shoot people full of arsenic. 
So yo, I should have know. been born earlier. I get some medical people up. Oh man, you'd be a doctor. I'd be a colonel. We could we could have a podcast called the Doctor Colonel Hour. Yeah, It'd and it's st- it will still be a lot of murder, but in real life, no. Because uh, there's also no contact lenses back then, and I'm very blind. So the doctoring oh, yeah. would be wild as hell. The doctoring would be wild, the driving as well, because none of us are wearing seatbelts. Um, just a bunch of blind people crashing into each other <laughs> in big steel cars. That oh. sounds awesome. Yeah, it does. It would kind of rule. Now, um, the shitty John Brown, as I like to call him, moved to Los Angeles to do his internship at Harbor General. He finished his internship at the Queen of Angels Hospital in Los Angeles. And at this point in his budding medical career, there seems to have been no sign that John was headed for anything but a productive career as a man of medicine. John finished his time in the military and went on to work as a general practitioner in California, Alaska, Hawaii, and the Marshall Islands. Now, it's possible that all this moving around was just John taking advantage of the fact that his skills as a doctor gave him the opportunity to see the world. Given what comes next, it's even more possible that he fucked up in a number of horrifying ways and had to repeatedly switch states. If that's the case, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anytime you've got a doctor in the 40s He's and like 50s the who moves constantly. He's like the of that time, you know? Yeah. They're like, oh, gotta move him to another parish. God, it would be so, like, I would absolutely have been surgerying people back I'm then. I'm saying. Just any kind of surgery you want, I'll just leave. I don't want to stay in Mississippi. Like, I'll cut off an arm in the next state. <laughs> It'll mm-hmm. be awesome. So, um, yeah, we don't know precisely what he did in his early career or if he was terrible uh, from an early point. We only have one example of an early fuck-up when he botched a thyroidectomy and almost lost a patient. Um, and we do know that John shouldn't have attempted to perform that surgery because he was not a surgeon and was not qualified to perform a surgery. So early on in his career, there is at least one case of him performing surgery without being trained to do so. I like a spunk, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You know, surgeries really, it's like driving, you know. It's 90% spunk, I think. Yeah, you just got to get in there and do it. Put your foot on the gas, close your eyes, and start cutting away meat, you know? (laughs) That's the way it works. So, uh, after botching a surgery, John decided that he should get training in the field if he was going to start cutting into people, uh, and he spent two years in Newark City Hospital as a resident, uh, and also attended a plastic surgery program in New York's Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Unfortunately, he proved to be terrible at all of this. He failed <laughs> repeatedly. The ex- yeah, yeah. So, he, he goes to surgery school, but he fails constantly the exam that would actually certify him to perform plastic surgery. Um, and then he later brags about this to journalists, quote, I passed the written part of the exam without cracking a book, uh, but he says that he failed his orals because his domineering father traumatized him, and so he couldn't handle confrontation with authority figures. He would say that my brain turns into cottage cheese whenever he had to do the practical exam, which... Dude, also stop bragging about not practicing for being a doctor. Yeah, nobody's impressed by that. That does not make you feel good. I want you to practice. Yeah, I don't. I don't pick my doctor because, like, who do I think has the best gut instinct? From yeah, this? I'm <laughs> like, if you can wing it, you can be my doctor. That's. I want the guy. Yeah, <laughs> that's not how we choose him. Yeah, I want someone who's like looks exhausted from the sheer number of books that they've read. Uh, yeah, I, I wanna want to come in their office and be like, "Damn, I could never read all of these." That's how mm. I want to feel. Yeah. Yeah. So in total, John Ronald Brown failed the general surgery oral examination twice and the plastic surgery oral examination three times. (laughs) He's not great. Now, this should have stopped him from ever performing surgery in a hospital, but it didn't, largely because no one really checked up on him. 
since he'd completed specialty residencies, he was still considered board eligible. And honestly, it seems like no one was really paying close attention. Um, so John got to work surgerying uh, all sorts of people. Uh, and outside of work, he had a somewhat tumultuous life. His first wife left him for one of his friends while he was in the army. His <laughs> second wife died of breast cancer. Uh, John moved back from the East Coast to California, where he started a medical surgery practice in San Francisco. Now... We don't know how John first learned about Christine Jorgensen's transition or how he felt about it, but it's plausible to assume his establishment in San Francisco, which was then one of the very few places in America where trans people had any visibility, um, would have keyed him in on the fact that there was suddenly a major demand in this segment of the population for surgeons, and particularly surgeons who might not check to, or surgeons who might not, um, you know, wanting you to have a doctor's note saying that you uh, you were prepared for the surgery. Surgeons who might just take the cash and do whatever you ask them. It's like when you go like, get butt implants and they put cement in your butt. Cause yes, like exactly. Just in a hotel in Miami. Yeah. So the first vagina, That's that was very specific. <laughs> I mean, that's a case. <laughs> I remember that Vice documentary about people's like lip injections that would rot their faces off. So that sounded... I'm assuming it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Just putting yeah. shit into things that you shouldn't be because you're not a licensed person and people just trying to save money out there and do it under the table. It's amazing the desperation for uh, something like thicker lips that would allow lead you to just like let somebody in a hotel room inject you with nonsense. Like, Also, so many of the stories are it. like, oh, and then I was like, is there, is there no... Uh, anesthesia and they're like nah i'm like well that's a really big sign for when you're oh, going good. to get surgery that you should be in under anesthesia not for lip injections but you know what i'm saying when people are like yeah, yeah. i had to get butt injections and they're just like well you're gonna be awake during this i'm like what that yeah Oof. So, uh, yeah, in the 1960s, the late 60s, uh, doctors started performing the first vaginoplasties. Um, and, uh, again, we don't exactly know when Brown got into this line of work. Uh, he probably started uh, providing minor cosmetic surgery to transitioning individuals, like facial surgery and stuff like that. Um, but he quickly grew interested in doing more extensive work. Um and by February of 1973, John Ronald Brown was established enough in the trans community that he gave a presentation at the Second Interdisciplinary Symposium on Gender Dysphoria Syndrome, sponsored by Stanford. Brown's presentation focused on what he called his miniaturization technique, in which he would turn a patient's penis into a clitoris, thus guaranteeing them the ability to continue to experience sexual climax. Um, so that's like the thing he starts like th 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 he's probably for years working in the community, but he has this idea to basically trim a penis down to a clitoris while doing a vaginoplasty. It's a and, good like, selling point. I mean, it's a good selling point. Yeah, it makes sense, right? If someone like, was like, oh, and you can come, I would be like, I don't care what you said before that. Sold. Yeah. So by the fall of that year, Brown had transitioned his own career almost entirely towards that sort of work. Uh, very few other doctors were willing to do it, and most charged prices that were far out of the reach of many trans people. Yep, that's what I'm saying. Access is just not like... Yep. It's financial and whatever. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, you're right. You're, you're, you're right on the money, because John Brown basically establishes himself as the budget surgeon for gender transition. Um, 
which is not, uh, I mean, it's obviously it's a necessary thing to have because there's a lot of desperate people who need the surgery. But, but preying also, on people who are just yeah. trying to live their li- like lives and ruining them physically and otherwise is just evil. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we're getting to. Yep. So this period of time is when a guy named Paul Ciotti, uh, a journalist for Time, uh, met John Ronald Brown. Now, Paul covered the LGBT community for time, and he seems to be one of the very few mainstream journalists in that period who legitimately cared about queer people. Um, if you read through his old articles, like the terminology he uses is not the terms we use today, but he's clearly like trying to be understanding and coming at this from a place of knowledge as opposed to sensationalism. And he kept his ear to the ground and read the mimeographed zines that the LGBT community disseminated during this period of time to get out vital information. And as a result, he ran across a story about a doctor on Lombard Street, who was, in the words of one columnist, lopping people's penises off. So obviously, as a journalist, uh, Paul's like, well, I want to know what's going on here. Uh, so he gives a call to Brown's Clinic. Yeah, and he I winds would up follow talking... up on a lopping penises off lead. That sounds yeah. very promising. Okay, <laughs> let's, let's see what's going on. Um, so he calls Brown's Clinic, and he winds up talking to Brown's partner, a guy named Dr. James Spence. And I'm going to quote from Ciotti's article in LA Weekly now. Spence struck me as a bit of a hustler, far less polished than one would expect of someone with a medical degree, if he had a medical degree. To some people, he gave business cards reading Dr. James Spence, but to me, he said he'd earned his medical degree in Africa and thus couldn't practice here. I later heard he was an ex-con who claimed to be a veterinarian, but that degree was phony too. The clinic wasn't much, just a few rooms on a busy street. It seemed more like a real estate office than anything else. Sensing my skepticism, perhaps, Spence invited me to an upcoming formal dinner at his hilltop home in Burlingham, where he and his partner, the renowned plastic surgeon Dr. John Ronald Brown, would be explaining his new operation to a group of urologists, proctologists, and internists, some of whom Spence hoped would join him and Dr. Brown in setting up the finest sex change facility anywhere in the country. So there's a lot of information in those paragraphs, and probably the most interesting is the fact that this guy's business partner, Dr. James Spence, is in no way a doctor. Um, He's even less of a doctor than his non-doctor partner. <laughs> yeah, he's a his guy only who qualification to be is a having vet. lied about being a veterinarian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Dr. Brown's practice was not exactly on the up and up. Um, now, despite his sketchiness, Brown needed Spence uh, because the good doctor, the actual doctor, Brown, was terrible at meeting people and had no connections in the queer community and was kind of an awkward person, was not very good at building connections. And at this point, you're really talking about something very similar to being a drug dealer when you're talking about being the kind of medical professional, like working with this community. And so Brown doesn't have the ability to like kind of interface the way that a drug dealer needs to, to build connections and trust in a community. And Spence, who is a literal criminal and not at all the doctor, is good at doing that. And he's able to build connections with the gay community. Um, and he helps broker deals between John Brown and queer figures like Angela Brown, who was the publisher of Mirage Magazine, which was like a, an LGBT-focused periodical at the time. Uh, John Brown helped to fund the magazine in exchange for promotion of his clinic. Now, Paul Ciotti attended the soiree Brown and Spence through to publicize the opening of their new clinic. And here's how he described it. This is interesting to me. 
After the fruit and cheese, we adjourned to the kitchen where one of the waitresses lay on a butcher block table and casually flipped up her skirt. A gooseneck lamp was produced and all the doctors proceeded to examine the kind of work currently being done by Dr. Brown's competition. I'm no expert in female anatomy, but the waitress's genitalia did not look like those of any woman I'd ever seen. There was no clitoris or anything resembling a vagina. It rather looked like someone had taken a pickaxe and neatly poked a small square hole an inch on a side directly into her groin. Either that or like an aerial photograph of a Manitoba iron ore mine taken from 20,000 feet. In contrast, Spence maintained, Brown had developed a revolutionary technique that would give transsexuals fully orgasmic clitorises and aesthetically pleasing vaginas. Later, Dr. Brown and I stood around the kitchen table while he displayed what to me were ghastly photographs of his surgical technique. One picture showed a gauze noose holding up the head of a bloody penis while Brown sliced away at the tendrils of unwanted erectile tissue. So, and I want to emphasize here, Ciotti is not like a squeamish dude about all this. Like, he's not the kind of dude who's just squeamish about the idea of trans surgeries. What he's seeing in Dr. Brown's work is, like, not good. Like, it's not the way it should look. Well, (laughs) Brown and Spence are, like, when serial killers work together and, like, Brown is the one that stays home and murders and then, like, Spence is the one that goes and gets the victims because he's, like, personable. Yeah, yeah, except for the victims sort of survive and in some ways get brought into the clinic. So like one of the ways, one of the ways that actually kind of made sense that they ran their clinic. So at this time, if you were going to like go the legit way to get gender confirmation surgery, um, you would work with a psychiatrist and would essentially spend some time taking hormones and living as uh, your new gender. Um, and then that psychiatrist would be like, okay, I think you're, you're ready. You're, you've committed. Like, this is clearly not a passing thing. Let's get you the surgery. What Dr. Brown and his, uh, and Spence said should be done is instead other trans women should meet with the people who wanted surgeries and vet them, which on its face sounds like, okay, that might be one, a reasonable way to do it is like, these people know what's really involved in the surgery. They might be able to do a better job of like judging like when someone's like emotionally like ready to undergo this thing, you know, when you're talking about the seventies, that seems like a pretty, pretty advanced way to look at it. But uh, the reality is that, um, those people are doctors or professionals. They're just people. They're not doctors or professionals. And they're essentially working for Dr. Brown as a way to pay off their own surgeries. Oh, so they'll just say Um, yes to anybody. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not, there's, there's aspects of what he was saying he wanted to do that. I'm like, yeah, that might make sense. And then like, like you really dig into it and it's like, oh, no, it was just a grift. Okay. It's a fucking MLM scheme, man. A little bit, except for I don't th- like none of them are in it to make a profit. They're just trying to d- get this thing that they like literally is life and death for them. This surgery. No, I just mean like yeah. once they're in, they're getting other people involved and then those people are going to get new people involved. And it's just like yeah. madness. Yeah, yeah, it's not, maybe not the best idea, although you can see why when he explains it to other people, they might be like, oh, yeah, that seems like a reasonable way to do it. Yeah, and who would know Um, at that point? It's not like, exactly. this is is revolutionary, so it could be revolutionary, like, we know that this is great, or revolutionary, like, it's just new, that's it. Yeah, so to layman at least, what Dr. Brown claimed to be doing made sense. His patients had penises that they wanted transformed into vaginas, so he would basically split the penis, saving the nerves and blood supply, and then reposition the head under a hood of flesh to create a clitoris. Uh, the penile skin was used to create labia, and the hair was removed from the scrotal skin to create the lining of a new vagina. In theory, this is a pretty reasonable way to do things. This is on paper what is supposed to be happening. There were two problems. 
Problem one was that John Ronald Brown had an almost pathological aversion to performing surgery in hospitals, medical clinics, and anywhere else you might actually want to have major surgery performed. Dude, that's part of the job. Are you kidding me? That's like if I'm like, I want to be a comedian, but I do not want to be on a stage or in a bar or in a theater or in a club. I want to be a comedian, but I would like to tell my jokes to the children of strangers who I abduct from their elementary school. Is that a job? I can? It's like, no, that's not the job. That's just a crime. Um, yeah. So instead of working in like, you know, a clean operating room where it's safe to perform surgery, John Ronald Brown preferred to work out of his own home, um, which I, I prefer to work out of my home, too. I'm working in my home, drinking my coffee and wearing my pajamas right now. Yeah, well, you can't be a, a stay at home surgeon. That's not no, an I, occupation. I, that's that's I, a fucked up dream. Like I, I like I would, points yeah. for dreaming the big dream, but you cannot be a stay at home surgeon. <laughs> Exactly. I perform surgery less than five times a year, I would say. Um, And, you know, mainly to friends (laughs) and enemies. Um, So, yeah, one early patient recalled going to Brown's home office, assuming that they would just receive a checkup on a surgery they'd gotten earlier. Instead, she woke up from the anesthetic to find that Brown had performed surgery on her in his garage. Jesus (laughs) fucking Christ. Not great. Um, Unsettling as that is, Dr. Brown was very popular for a while, as his no-frills practice made transitioning much more affordable than it had ever been before. John's home acquired the nickname The House of Dreams, which is fucking heartbreaking given what comes next. Yeah. One of John's early patients was a woman named Elizabeth. She was initially very happy with her new vagina, but a year after receiving the surgery, it began to tighten up and essentially heal itself closed. When she freaked out about this, John was nowhere to be found. Elizabeth had to find another surgeon, Dr. Jack Fisher, to bat cleanup. When interviewed later, Fisher, who had to clean up for a lot of Brown's patients, said this. It's hard to imagine anyone worse than John Ronald Brown. He didn't care much for evaluating his patients before surgery or for post-operative care. He was totally focused on the technical procedure itself, and he didn't do that very well. So this guy is all about the technical details of the surgery, and he's also bad at the technical details of the surgery. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in spite of the sketchiness of Brown's practice and the bad experience of a lot of his patients, he was very popular among the trans community for a while. Wendy Davidson, who helped to organize peer clinics for the trans community, which is like clinics operated like buy-in for trans people to like provide each other with life-saving health care since the government and society did not give a fuck about them. So Wendy worked with Dr. Brown for a while until another activist, Donna Colvin, reported that she'd seen Brown shooting up Valium before performing surgery on patients, sometimes on literal kitchen tables. Oh my God. Which acquired the nickname Tabletop Brown. Jesus. Now, Sophia, you know who won't shoot up Valium and perform unlicensed surgery on a kitchen tabletop? The following goods and services? That's right. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets 
that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Uh, we're talking about Tabletop Brown, um, a terrible surgeon. So, Sophia, how are you feeling so far? Feeling pretty peppy. Good things are on the horizon. <laughs> you are, are you are fiddling with things with your hand in such a way that I can almost like taste the discomfort in the room, and that means it's a good episode. Question: uh, How ready? long till I can show her what this guy looks like? Let's wait until the end of episode one. Copy. Okay, so excited. Oh my god, now I'm trying to picture what I think he might look like. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a thing. 
So uh, these stories, uh, stories of like him shooting up Valium before performing table surgery, uh, took some time to percolate out into the wider community. For one thing, most of the women engaging Brown's services specifically hired him because they couldn't afford to go to professional clinics where surgery, for example, was performed in an Not OR. Not in a kitchen. <laughs> Not in a kitchen. The fact that he worked out of his house, as well as hotel rooms and garages, was just something that these patients had to accept because they were trans women in the 70s and there just weren't a lot of fucking options you know yeah. uh it was garbage it's still garbage but slightly less anyway do you think Paul if you Ciotti, got if you got your surgery done in the in a kitchen and then you found out your friend got theirs in a garage you were like kind of big timing them you're like oh yeah mm, i guess he didn't think you were good enough to operate for to operate on in the kitchen mm. oh okay. you're a kitchener huh mm, uh, yeah oh you're a garager yeah, mm, yeah i was in yeah. the kitchen sorry about that sorry about that nice kitchen he had a juice maker um so Paul Ciotti, who's like the very first journalist to dig into John and really like the source of 60% of the information for this podcast. I really, I have a lot of, I don't know much about the rest of his career, but just based on sort of his work in this community in this period, I have a lot of admiration for him because he's writing for like Time fucking magazine and he's covering this group of people that like nobody else gives a shit about. So good on you, Paul. Props. Um, yeah, props. So uh, he found John Ronald Brown impressive at their first meeting. Uh, and I'm going to quote from him here. I must say he came across as genial, knowledgeable, and obviously quite proud of his technique. There was a certain naivete and even passivity about him that struck me as surprising in a surgeon. But compared to everything else I'd seen that night, it didn't warrant a second thought. So Paul wrote what he describes as a pretty boring article about sexual reassignment surgery for Time, since he didn't think that Time would publish the wider details about what he'd seen. Um, and before it went to print, Dr. Brown called him to beg that Paul not mention his name in the article. He informed Paul that he and Spence had had a falling out and canceled their plans to start a clinic. It is uncertain precisely what happened between Spence and Brown, but stories later came out that he allowed Spence to carry out his own surgeries. And again, Spence was a fake veterinarian, uh, not even a fake doctor. So like something very, very sketchy happened between him and Spence and they stopped getting along. By 1977, Dr. Brown had botched enough surgeries that a bunch of other doctors, the ones who'd had to correct his work largely, had complained. The California Board of Medical Quality Assurance looked into Dr. Brown and was shocked to realize that he'd worked with a fake veterinarian turned fake doctor and let this person perform surgery. They revoked his medical license for, quote, gross negligence, incompetence, and practicing unprofessional medicine in a matter which involved moral turpitude. Among other things, the board was furious with John for allowing his patients to work as clinical assistants in order to pay off their medical debts to him. So this is, again, what I'm talking about. Like, people can't pay all up front, and he's like, why don't you be a nurse? Well, I don't. you don't need to know how to be a nurse. My my, my partner here is a fake vet, so yeah, like, exactly. yeah, just my, come on my, in. My doctor partner is not a doctor. <laughs> None of us yeah. are who we say we are here. You want to pretend to be a nurse? <laughs> you want to pretend to be a nurse? I'll, I'll, I'll shave a couple grand off the cost. <laughs> now, I'm going to quote from Paul Ciotti again. Among other things, the board charged, uh, Brown allowed Spence to hold himself out as an MD. He allowed unlicensed people, including other transsexual patients, to write prescriptions under his signature, diagnose patients, and provide medical care. He misrepresented sex change surgery on insurance forms as corrective surgery for the congenital absence of a vagina. He exhibited gross negligence by failing to perform sex change operations in an acute care facility. Brown did them in his office on an outpatient basis. He unaccountably failed to hospitalize a patient who had a life-endangering and pus-infected wound the size of a softball where he 
his penis used to be. He failed oh to take God. medical histories or do physical exams before surgery, and he did sex change surgery on virtually anyone who asked for it, regardless of whether they were physically or emotionally stable enough to cope with it. Um, and I think that's uh, where her penis should be. I'm not really sure about how that patient identified. As a general rule, Paul's pretty careful about not misgendering people, but it was the 70s. Um, and yeah, yeah. I think he's better than most people. Um, so at that point in history, many credible surgeons required their patients to have lived as their chosen gender for at least a year prior to receiving surgery. There's a lot that makes sense about this practice, but it also meant that many of the people who most needed to transition never got the opportunity. Uh, if your life and job and friends and family couldn't accept you living as a woman before actually receiving the surgery, that would uh, that would make it easy to pass, then you, you just couldn't transition. Um, some people, including some reputable physicians, defended Dr. Brown for serving the community when no one else would. Uh, the judge who revoked his medical license actually filed a memorandum opinion for Brown, calling him a pioneer who made innovative contributions to transsexual surgery, despite difficulties like performing major surgery on a dinner table. The judge suggested that Brown should be limited to performing surgery in a medically recognized organization rather than being drummed out of the field entirely. So that's actually a little bit surprising to me that like... Yeah, what a the, weird uh, answer to the situation. Like, we still want yeah. this guy on the team. You know, I think it might just be a judge who realized that these people were desperate and that no one else was serving them and is like... Again, the primitive nature of like our understanding of like um, gender and in, in particularly trans people at this point means that like this might not have seemed as brutal because like you have to think... Like, think about early treatments for cancer. Like, they're literally, like, pouring acid into people's wounds. Like, like hydrochloric acid and shit like that. Like, trying to burn it off from the inside. Um, so, medicine tends to be brutal. And you, especially medicine that's kind of on the cutting edge. And especially in this period. And I think probably there were a lot of people who were like, well, of course he has a lot of patients with bad outcomes. This is new. Nobody knows how to do it well. We're still learning this thing. You know, we should just try to make sure he works in a good, clean space because he's a pioneer. Like, I think that's the that's the angle, at least from the people who are like reasonably um, like compassionate. Like, I, I think he kind of tricks some of them and they're like, well, yeah, what he did isn't great. But like no one else is is doing this work. And it's it's, it's well, no one else field. is harming this group of people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you also have to admit. There were hundreds of people by this point who had horrible, or at least dozens who had horrible John Brown stories, but there were at least as many, if not more, people who had good John Brown surgeries. Um, because, you know, it, it's some people, it's the same thing that's like one of the difficulties today. Some people take really easily to this kind of surgery, and their bodies heal well, and it's very simple for them. And, you know, between like minor surgery and the hormones, they have a really easy transition. And some people, because of their age or because of just their genetics, it's much more complicated. And so there are some people who John does his thing on and it works out great for them and they get a good deal and they're grateful and they speak his praises and they send other people to him. Um, and so it's not just people saying he did a horrible job on me. I so guess like I didn't realize like, how many happy customers he had. Yeah, Sorry, it's Robert. Say, Sounds like you're caping well, for him. I'm just trying to point out, like, is for this the how judge, when it, I was here last time, you were like pro a certain kind of dog fight. I am. I'm pro a lot of <laughs> kinds of dog fights. I mean, look, we don't need to get into that today. No, sorry. Go go ahead. Hashtag not all dog fights. Um, <laughs> don't make so, that into uh, a hashtag, Robert. It's a good hashtag, Sophie. No. It's a good hashtag. 
So um, the judge is like, this guy's a pioneer. We got to stop him from doing tabletop surgery. But, you know, maybe if we can get him to just work in an OR, he can do good work. Um, But John Brown did not take this advice or this chance to actually improve his skills and serve a community in a responsible way. Instead, he moved to Hawaii. Uh, He almost immediately lost his permission to practice medicine in the state by doing something horrible. So he moved to Alaska, and he lost his permission to practice medicine in Alaska shortly thereafter. The hits kept on coming. In 1979, uh, one of his very first vaginoplasty patients sued. Julie had initially reached out to Dr. Brown about getting breast implants. He'd convinced her that he could make her, into his words, a perfect woman with his new techniques, uh, and convinced Julie to undergo a full operation. Uh, Dr. Brown was assisted in this by not a Dr. Spence. The surgery did not go well, and Julie sued in 1979, claiming Dr. Brown had left her neither male nor female. They settled out of court for enough money to provide psychiatric care help for the rest of Julie's life and a new operation. By the time the court battle was done, Dr. Brown had basically rendered himself unemployable across the entirety of the continental United States, Hawaii, and Alaska. So, next, he moved to the Caribbean. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Why you gotta bring uh, uh, the Caribbean into this? Why you gotta do it? Yeah, uh, St. Lucia, to be specific. Oh, no. Now, when you read other doctors talking about John Brown, they'll note that it was considered almost impossible to lose your medical license in the Caribbean at that point in time. But John did. Um, and oh, like, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> he is a pioneer. Um, like people talking about like I don't know how he lost his medical license in the fucking Caribbean but he 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 it must have been horrible. So uh St. Lucia was not entirely a loss for Dr. John Ronald Brown though. In 1981 he fell in love there for the third and final time. That sounds Love might ominous. be too strong a word for it. Yeah, love love may not be the the proper way to describe this. I should say at age 59 Dr. John Brown contracted an arranged marriage with the parents of a 17-year-old girl who did not speak English. Oh god. Oh fuck. Now, would you would okay. you call that love? Yeah. I'd call it buying a woman. Oh. Yeah, buying a woman seems accurate. He seems to have basically paid her parents for her hand in marriage. She's uh, a child new. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He taught his new wife, Julie, to speak English, and they had two sons. Uh, In an interview with Paul Ciotti, decades later, here's how Julie recalled their courtship. He asked me if I would like to get married. I said, I don't know. I was 17. He was 59. Still, I'd be remiss if I didn't state that Julie has, for years, been consistent in expressing her gratitude to Dr. Brown. Even after they divorced in the 1990s, she insisted to reporters that she still loved him. He raised me. He taught me to read and write. He's a really good man. If I had to do it again, I'd marry him in a heartbeat. That's straight up Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, it's fucked up. Like... He raised me and taught me how to read and write. Yeah, Shouldn't that's some Woody Allen soon My shit. husband. That is not yeah. okay. It's not okay. You can't raise um, someone and fuck yeah. them at the same time. That's not okay. No. No, you cannot. Um, no, you cannot. I don't have a joke for that. Nah, just I pick shouldn't. a lane. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, once John lost his license to practice in the Caribbean, he was left with only one possible option for continuing his medical practice. Do I even need to say where he moved next? You know. Is it your Africa? Heart of no. Where do where do where does a California doctor go when no other place Mexico? will let him practice med- Yeah, that's right. Baja baby. Uh. <laughs> uh no longer legally a doctor Brown established a new plastic surgery clinic in Tijuana. 
while he lived in Chula Vista, California. In order to dress up the fact that he was illegally performing surgery in Mexico to avoid U.S. law enforcement, Brown described his business as an international practice in brochures. Now, he was far from the only doctor to use Tijuana as a base of operations for his underground gender reassignment surgery business. A number of physicians, some of whom were competent, worked out of the city as well. The two most prominent were doctors Biber and Barbosa. In short order, Dr. Brown established himself as the dude you went to when you could not afford either of those other better guys. Uh, he was the doctor you went with if you wanted a surgery fast. He didn't even require hormone treatment, let alone a psychiatrist's referral beforehand. Over the course of the 1980s, he earned a reputation as Tabletop Brown for his willingness to perform surgery basically anywhere. Dallas Denny, a trans activist, started hearing horrifying stories about Brown during this time. Quote, patients were waking up in parked cars or abandoned in hotel rooms. There was no screening and no aftercare. Anyone who walked in the room was a candidate. Some of these people, expecting vaginoplasties, received simple panectomies, leaving them looking somewhat like a Barbie doll. Others ended up with something that looked like a penis, which had been sewn and split to their groin, which is essentially what had been done. Some ended up with vaginas, which were lined with hair-bearing scrotal skin. These vaginas quickly filled up with pubic hair, becoming inflamed and infected. Some ended with periodontitis, some with permanent colostomies, some ran out of money and were dumped in back alleys and parking lots to live or die. Wow. What a Not a great doctor. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nightmare. Um, now, Jack Fisher, uh, who's that plastic surgery professor at UC San Diego we talked about earlier, the guy who batted cleanup for John Brown a lot, concurs with Dallas's summary of Dr. Brown's competence. Uh, and again, this is the guy who spent years like working on people that he had butchered. Um, and after correcting what he called 12 to 15 pelvic disasters, he said this. He's a terrible, appalling technical surgeon. There is just no other way to describe it. He doesn't know how to make a straight incision. He doesn't know how to hold a knife. He has no regard for limiting blood loss. Uh, and Dr. Fisher believes Dr. Brown's practice amounted to a crime against humanity. But, I should say, not everybody felt this way. Dr. Brown performed hundreds of gender transition surgeries, and either through his own semi-competence or the fact that some people really take easily to the surgery, a number of these worked out pretty well. Uh, Paul Ciotti tracked down several of these women, and I'm going to quote from his reportage again. One 33-year-old manager for a major airline tells me she had Brown do her gender reassignment surgery in 1985, when she was only 19. It was so successful, she says, that when she later got married, her husband never guessed that she'd been a male. To simulate a period, she used to prick her finger to leave bloodstains on the sheets. I also hear from Anne, a Cambodian refugee whose father was killed by the Khmer Rouge, that Brown had changed her entire suffering, painful life from that of an ugly worm to a beautiful butterfly. Furthermore, unlike that of some transsexuals who have difficulty passing as women, her surgery turned out so well, she says, that she got a job as a stripper in Las Vegas's Chinatown. Now, while these stories were not necessarily rare, they were not the norm either. Uh, Cherry, uh, a North California businesswoman, traveled to Dr. Brown's clinic in 1984 to have dual sexual reassignment surgery with her brother. She explains, he ran specials, bring a girlfriend, two for the price of one. Cherry backed out at the last moment when she saw his actual office. The sewers overflowed constantly, and there was rarely running water. The OR was just a bedroom with an OBGYN chair in it. Sometimes, Cherry claimed, Brown would sip coffee while doing the operation. And I'm going to quote now from LA Weekly. 
Jeez. The thing that most bothered Cherry, she says, was Brown's brusque attitude. After surgery, he would grab the dried, blood-clotted bandages and rip them right off. He was always so disheveled, too. His hair went in different directions. His shoes were scuffed and worn down. I remember him walking down the hall eating raw weenies right out of the package. A fucking package of weenies. Ew. So, in one case, says Cherie, who spent 11 days at Brown's clinic caring for her new sister, Brown operated on an HIV-positive patient who still had pins in her arm from an auto accident. She used the insurance settlement to pay for her surgery. In another, he used too much erectile tissue to construct the genital outer lips. As a result, whenever the girl got excited, her labia got hard. So, not a great surgeon. Now, as the 1980s faded into the 1990s, Dr. John Brown was probably the most prominent low-budget gender reassignment surgeon, at least in Mexico. But the growing list of people crippled and deformed by his work were starting to gain notice and speak out against him. Unfortunately for everyone, Dr. Brown had evolved, and his miniaturization technique had given away to something vastly more horrifying. We're going to talk about that and how it all came crashing down for John Ronald Brown in Part 2. How you doing, Sophia? Just peachy. Everything's super fun and happy. Thanks for having me, Robert. You like this guy? Yeah. What a fan. Oh, my God. That's what he looks like. Yeah. 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 You looking at his picture? Yeah. He does not look like I would trust him. No. How would you describe him? Just like an evil old man, like racism personified, I guess. Yeah. He looks like he would be like shouting at a group of school kids and particularly shouting at the school he's kids like who weren't white definitely in that group your f- for being on his lawn. Yeah. He's your definitely your friend's like grandpa that would molest you. That's what he looks yeah. like. Yeah, he looks very molesty. Like profoundly so. Mm-hmm. So Sophia, are you uh you in a good mood? Yeah. Like Soup's happy, you know? I love, 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 love it when a group of people just gets terrorized by a fucking murderer. And they already are the most uh, marginalized group out there. So, yeah, you know, feeling pretty good. For some reason, the, the most horrifying part of all this, like there's a lot of terrible surgery stories in here, but the most horrifying thought here is of like a doctor sipping coffee and eating cold weenies from a package and then immediately performing surgery without washing his hands. Like that's the thing that like the entire thing is so creepy. A doctor that's okay with open sewage around. How can you even eat a weenie when there's sewage around? (laughs) Raw or cooked. (laughs) John Brown. God damn. Well, you uh, want to plug your pluggables, Sophia, before we ride out? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Sophia T H E S O F I Y A, and I have a weekly podcast with Miles Gray from the Daily Zeitgeist. It's called Four Twenty Day Fiance. It's half game show, half recap of our favorite trash show, Ninety Day Fiance, and I have a podcast about love and sexuality called Private Parts Unknown. So check both of those out with Courtney Kosak, who did Bastards like two episodes ago. She did. She did. And I'm Robert Evans. I have a podcast. It's this one. You can listen to it by continuing to listen to it. (laughs) You can find it online at BehindTheBastards.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at AtBastardsPod. I have a political podcast you can listen to about this election called Worst Year Ever with my friends Katie and Cody. It's on the same network. Um, And I will perform surgery on you. 
Um, but I will eat cold weenies the entire time I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> any kind of surgery, I don't really care. I just love surgery. So um, come on down. Find me in the woods. Um, I'll just start cutting. Robert yeah. the Cutter. Robert the Cutter. All right. That's the episode. Go, um, go listen to something happy to wash this out of your brain. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.